John Martin from Turner. Hello. Um, I was thinking it was going to be tough to follow it up because Jim quoted Heat at the beginning of that conversation. <laughs> but he peppered it up there at the end. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, Thanks for We talked me. late August, early September. You showed me your tattoos. I'm hoping that you'll be doing that at some point, maybe is is private viewing later. Uh, <laughs> um, and a lot has changed since we talked. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump is going to be president. Um, he's, and we he's, just heard why. We just heard why. But he's taking. I think he just went by in the motorcade, too. I don't know yeah. if you noticed all well, the John signs. George right there. He's completely fucked up traffic in New York forever. Um, well, he's not a fan of, of you, or at least your, your, your network. Uh, he, takes, he takes pleasure in, in beating up CNN. And before we even get to that, um, AT&T is going to buy Time Warner, the company you work for. I heard so, that. So what do you want to talk about first, Trump or, <laughs> or AT&T? Uh, I'll, lead, I'll let you lead the way. Uh, well, let's talk, let's talk about what it's like to, I don't know if, I don't know if you saw the, the tweets live or if you wake up in the morning and you see that Donald Trump this week um, had a tweet storm about CNN. It's not the first time he's done it. I was going to say, it's not the first time. Not the first time, mm-hmm. but previously he wasn't going to be president. Now he's going to be president. So mm-hmm. what's it like to have the president criticizing your flagship network? Look, I think, um, you know, it, 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 following on the previous speaker, who I think ended in a fantastic way, and... I would agree with every single thing that he said with regard to why the polls were wrong and why the general media got the election results wrong. Because even waking up on election day, I would have bet that Hillary would have won. And I actually thought Hillary would have won by a considerable margin. That was the conventional wisdom. Um, and Donald is, it was a very non-traditional candidate. And in some respects, early days, but he's a non-traditional president-elect. But he is the president-elect. And in some respects, I don't think it means anything for us at CNN. Uh, We have a huge journalistic mission to, and we try to the best we can at CNN. I mean, we're not Fox News, which is cheering, and MSNBC, which is laying on the floor. Uh, we try to be as nonpartisan and ob- as objective as we possibly can. And that means holding everybody's feet to the fire in times when we feel like there are things that we can be objective and potentially critical about, but at the same time, be balanced on the other side as well. And so, you know, the thing that I would just mention about uh, President-elect Trump, I mean, he's been critical about CNN. He's been critical about NBC. He's been critical. Mostly of- critical about CNN. And the Times as well, but he really likes pounding on CNN. You know, well, I mean, I think he probably watches CNN more than any other news organization. You think he's a fan, a secret fan? Well, he's a secret I think CNN he, fan. I think he, uh, and look, only he knows this when he's in the shower, but I think he really cares about what CNN is saying. So when the president-elect tweets about CNN and how it's a failing news organization, well, do, you not, guys, I mean, do you guys have a... Failing? It's his, his line, not... Yeah. Um, do you have a conversation about that at Time Warner uh, with, brought, with Jeff Bikas? Do you have to talk about what Jeff Zucker works for you? Well, Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN, yep. is doing a fabulous job. And just to be clear, CNN, you know, in, in every Hall of Fame athlete's career, there's like, there's, there's a year, there's a Hall of Fame year. CNN is completing its Hall of Fame year. You're saying uh, this, this is the most profitable year for CNN? Yeah, it's going to have a billion dollars of profit this year. Uh, it, it, it hosted more debates and town halls and other political forums than any other network 
all the networks combined, CNN hosted more of them. That was largely at the behest of the RNC and the DNC who put their trust in CNN to be able to moderate these forums in a way that was fair and unbiased. And I'm, I'm, I couldn't be more proud of how we've covered the election. And look, nobody's perfect. Do you have any regrets about the way you covered, about the way CNN covered the election over the year and a half? Look, there's always going to be these small little instances. By and large, I couldn't be more proud. Small stuff, not big stuff. Not big stuff. Um, just because I know people care. You guys hired Corey Lewandowski. He'd been working mm-hmm. with the Trump campaign. He got paid by the Trump campaign while he was on your air. As soon as the campaign was over, he went back to work. I guess he's going to go back to work for the, for the Trumps. Would, mm-hmm. you, would you rehire him under the same circumstances? Uh, I don't, that's a hypothetical question I don't have to answer because he, he is not coming back. You never know. He might show up again. Um, and he's not getting paid anymore. You mentioned money. Um, the, the conventional wisdom was that next year, without the election, CNN and every other news network would see their ratings go down. Mm-hmm. Are you recalibrating now that we're in this uncharted water with a reality show president? Well, let me start with the financials, and then we can back into, because I think people place probably under-reliance on, on ratings. CNN is going to have a record year this year, and 2017... Uh, undoubtedly is going to have a record year. It will be higher profits next year than this year because it's tough to predict exactly what the ratings are going to be, although with the Trump administration, I think there's going to be a general fascination that maybe would not have been the same with the Clinton administration, although that's conjecture. Um, But, you know, we spent a lot of money to cover the presidential election this year, that money goes away. We're going to have more originals on CNN in 2017 than we did in 2016, which we monetize at higher rates with, with younger audiences, bigger audiences in many cases. And, uh, and I think when you – and we're going to have huge affiliate fee growth because, again, as, as the previous speaker said, I mean, we're a dual revenue stream business. So I fully expect ad revenue is going to go down. Affiliate revenue is going to go way up. Expenses are going to go down. And when you add up all the peanuts... And adding, the and adding President Trump to the mix doesn't fundamentally change it, you don't think? Maybe there's even some upside because there's probably, more audience. It's probably a little bit better from a business standpoint. But it doesn't change our journalistic mission at all. Let's talk about the other seismic event in your life. Uh, you guys are slated to sell to, to AT&T if the, if the deal's approved for $85 billion. Um, I was looking at the S4 because I'm that kind of nerd. Wow. And it says the, the conversation I'm started impressed. between I, – I can, I can use a, a, a web browser. I'm awesome. <laughs> um, it says Randall Stevenson and Jeff Bukas started talking about this stuff in August. Yeah. When did, when did Jeff Bukas or Randall Stevenson tell you AT&T was going to buy Time Warner? Well, um, there's – I was Jeff's CFO for six years. And now being a Turner for three years, he and I have had – pretty consistent conversations about where we thought the industry was going and what the ultimate end game for Time Warner could and might be and what might make sense and what might not make sense. And I was very involved in the Fox situation and why that didn't make sense. Fox wanted to buy um, you guys. You said no, but you were right. clearly in play at that point once. I mean, it seemed like you were clearly positioning it to be sold at some point. So, but specifically with respect to the AT&T conversations, when it got down to the discrete conversations, uh, that was kept to a very, very small group of people uh, for, and I have sympathy for that, having been part of some really big mergers in the past because of leaks and things of that nature. Um, when I was specifically brought into the mix about when the deal was, it was, it was not that, 
And one of the stories I read that, said said it was they, not that uh, earlier than when the announcement was. Yeah, so so literally like a week or two before the deal gets announced. Yeah, I was you, standing out in a street in London on the phone saying, "Oh, okay, this is interesting." And he's but not, asking, not, like he's not asking not, for your input at that point. No, he's saying this had, is what's going to happen. But this but, but this has been part of an ongoing conversation, and we've talked endlessly about the benefits of. Look, if you, if you look at our business, and, and the previous two speakers have talked about the challenges that media faces, um, if you think about what I believe is going to determine successful media companies from those that are going to struggle, I mean, clearly one is you have to have great branded environments. Uh, I, mean, I think Time, Time Warner and clearly Turner, we know how to create premium programming, right? But in, more and more, we're trying to morph our company into a tech company we want to know much more about who our consumers are directly. And if you think about where the most dramatic growth in, in consumption of media is going to happen, it's not going to be in print. It's going to be in video and mobile video. So the really interesting and exciting thing about linking up with an AT&T is, first of all, it could supercharge our ability to move into tech. In fact, when we talked in August... I spoke to you about the fact that we were essentially thinking about transforming right. the company into a tech company I, I where we would control end-to-end -end the consumer Right, and I want to talk about that in a minute. I just want to go okay. back to the, how this – because there's three division heads or unit heads. I don't know how you guys are broken up, but you run one-third, basically, of, of an $85 billion company. Well, we, I run the one that's 60%, but <laughs> – Thank you just for saying. the clarification. We'll get Pleppel around and see what he says. Um, so, but they, they go ahead and say, we're going we're gonna to buy the company, but they haven't talked to you about how that might work. That's just how business works at this point. They just say, here's what's happening. Get, I had lunch with Randall uh, the first day after the announcement of the merger. And we had a really terrific, in-depth conversation about how they're thinking about you know, where Time Warner and how it would fit into the overall company. And this is really a vertical merger in the true sense of the word, meaning that um, the AT&T executives are not in the media business. They don't create content. So what they have said to us is that we're going to be a wholly owned subsidiary of AT&T. And, uh, and I believe that makes a lot of sense. I believe that we can work together very collaboratively and, and innovate for the benefit of the consumer. Um, and we'll have to wait and see what happens. I think, I do think and I had a very good feeling about the meeting that I had with Randall. I think he really respects the culture of Time Warner. I think most of these big mergers sort of don't work at the end of the day when cultures really clash. Uh, I knew it's Two very different I knew, cultures. Well, I knew day two of the AOL Time Warner merger that it was going to be a shit show. And, and I really knew on day one I just wanted to sleep on it one night. Um, I mean, in that the early, case, the early days here have been quite a bit better. In Time Warner, there was supposed to be a synergy between the internet company and the traditional uh, media company. And in this case, there's supposed to be synergy here, too, and I cannot understand how it works. You could explain it to me, or maybe not, because you've been on both sides of this. You're at Turner now. You're doing content. You used to be at Time Warner Cable, mm -hmm. um, so you know how that business works. And you were at Time Warner when you got – you were CFO at Time Warner when you guys got rid of Time Warner Cable, presumably because mm -hmm. you didn't think there was a synergy there. Mm -hmm. So how's it going to work this time around? It doesn't, it's not obvious. No, the AOL Time Warner merger was a flawed strategy. Forget and, AOL Time Warner, and, but no, no, Time Warner so, Cable and Time Warner. So, so here's, okay, so here's some distinctions. AT Time Warner? Um, when we decided to spin Time Warner Cable, we owned a regional distribution company that, that covered really only about, no, no, but covered 
probably 20% or less of the US households. So by definition, having content that had to be ubiquitously distributed, you had to ask yourself, what's the benefit of owning under common ownership something that only passes 20% of the US households? So that's number one. So DirecTV is a national service. Um, the second thing is, when we decided to spend time on our cable, I don't think we fully had an appreciation uh, in full transparency of how the importance of data would potentially transform how we monetize our audiences. And so, again, there's still probably limited benefits by virtue of having a regional distribution company versus a national distribution company. And then if you think about what AT&T offers with its, its mobility and its mobile cu customer base, I think uh, there's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger idea from a vertical integration company to be aligned with an AT&T versus a Time Warner Cable. I'm still confused. So, so uh, you guys just did a deal with AT&T for the direct TV now, for yeah. the web TV service. So you did that deal with them. Mm -hmm. So in a year or two years from now, if they owned Time Warner, would that deal look any different? It seems to me like it has to be the exact same deal, and you guys have to offer AT&T the same terms that you would offer Comcast or Charter. We, we have always operated. I mean, at Time Warner, and I would say it's probably the same at Comcast, NBC Universal. When you do deals between divisions, they have to be at market rates and at market terms. So this isn't about one division subsidizing another. Or but, keeping stuff exclusively, which is something Al Franken's raised, the idea that maybe, maybe HBO only goes to AT&T. That, that can't be true. That's a moronic thought, honestly. From, from the great state of Minnesota. Um, because, well, because it, it would ruin the value of HBO. Right. So, so then what is the value of having those two companies merged? Well, I think there's the possibility of having access to AT&T's data. Now, it may not be exclusive access, but you know, making sure that we've got access to that. It's about innovating with new products and services. And Kevin Riley, who's here, runs two of the four most profitable television networks in the world. Like the idea of creating premium content for potential mobile devices or for, uh, for DirecTV, potentially, you know, in addition to or above and beyond. So maybe there is stuff that only goes to AT&T customers. There may be. And I think having, and it's hard to exactly estimate the impact, but having the ability to be under common ownership with a company that is a massive mobile provider, uh, I think could provide some really exciting opportunities. But admittedly, these are early days post-announcement of the merger. There's lots and lots of things that need to be worked out, and the merger's still under review. So, Back, back to Trump. Do you think, and he said, I don't think this is a good deal. That's uh, not a natural segue. Oh, no, okay. but this is, we're still in the same boat. Um, do, do you think a Trump administration is more or less likely to approve this? I, I'm not the person to speculate yeah, about Yeah, me neither, that. but I thought uh -huh. I'd ask. <laughs> um, on, on, the, on the tech side, so we talked about you want to sell stuff directly to consumers. Lots of people, lots of entertainment companies are, are trying this right now. CBS mm -hmm. is doing it. HBO has already been doing it for a little bit. Um, you guys have started doing it a little bit. The film struck, right. Um, does, is this always going to be sort of, or how long does this remain a sort of side business, something you're trying versus the core of your business, which right now is, is selling wholesale to uh, someone like Time Warner Cable or Comcast? I think there's a, there's a natural evolution that's a big part of this. So traditionally, in, in fact, as recently as three years ago when I became the CEO of Turner, we were a wholesaler. We sat in the middle of 
producers and, and retailers and we didn't even own a lot of our own content. We licensed it from others and then we gave it back to them once our window was over. So we've changed that strategy and we've moved to owning our own content. And we still, our best partners are still our traditional distributors, cable satellite telco companies, because they pay us five and a half, six billion dollars a year. We love those folks. But now you're, you're starting to see more ambitions from these new virtual folks coming in. I mean, you've got Sling, Sony View, Hulu's made announcements. We're probably talking to almost a half a dozen other players. Amazon? One of them. And that, that would be sort of the second leg of the stool. And there, I think the benefit of having the virtual folks potentially come in and enter the market is twofold. Number one, they're innovating faster than the traditional folks, so the consumer experience will be better, and the consumer experience is hugely important. And number two, there are too many shitty networks in the United States that have to go away, and there has to be a mechanism to exclude them. And so the virtual folks coming in may have more of an ability and to do that. that excludes them how? How does, how does the, the... Just not carry them in a little price they're package. Gonna, they're just going to say, we're not carrying yeah. shitty network one, two, three, and four. Yeah. And none of yours are in the shitty network group. No. That's good. No, we get, I mean, we get almost 90% of our affiliate revenues from four networks. So TBS and TNT. TBS is number one. TNT is number four. CNN, kind of an important network. And Cartoon Network Adult Swim. So I feel really good about boasting that we have the... The, the most concentrated portfolio of, of, of valued networks in the United States. I'd put our networks up against anybody. What changes for the consumer if we've already got, you've got Sling and Sony are out, DirecTV just announced, I guess, they went live today, Hulu's coming next year. If you have five, six or more of these virtual uh, cable systems out there, what, what changes for the consumer? Because these are all still bundles. You've still got to pay 40 50 more 60 choice bucks. for them. Is, is it real choice? Because it seems like they're, they're kind of clustering around the same stuff. I think it's good. I think, you know, I think it's very early to, to, to be able to predict exactly what that is. Because I, I hear what you're saying, which is nobody's exactly cracked the code. And nobody's exactly figured out what the consumers want. But we know consumers... Consumers will tell you, I just want to get these three channels. And I don't want to pay 50 bucks. I want to pay 13 bucks. Yeah, I, you know, I see that, but, but you know, I'm not sure that that's actually right. Because if you live in a house with three people, you know, the average, uh, uh, the average channel set of what people watch is not three. It's more like 12. And then if you've got three people in a household, most of those 12 are not the same. And so you're probably looking at a package of 30 channels, not three. Uh, maybe different for a college kid or something. I mean, I offered to buy my daughter a TV. She's a sophomore at NYU and said, I don't want a TV. I don't watch TV. That's a totally different subject. Um, and and I, I don't like her. <laughs> she, watches, she watches a tremendous amount of video on her laptop. Which she paid for, so. Which is more expensive than a TV, so. Yeah. Um, you should get her the TV. Um, <laughs> um, speaking of your daughter, does she, does she watch sports on TV? No. No, and she tells She's you a that. sports hater, yeah. You, got, you guys have spent a bunch on sports rights, not as much Little as ESPN. Bit. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Um, About a billion and a half dollars a year. So that's a lot, by my estimation. Um, a lot of discussion this fall with, with the NFL ratings being crappy, uh, the NFL saying, well, it's the election. It's a lot of other reasons. Um, it seems to me that, that, that the NFL ratings are down for the same reason all TV ratings are down, which are people like your daughter 
not watching conventional television. Are you right. worried well, about? She never about, did before. She so wasn't watching. She's the undermining NFL before. Um, are you worried about about sports rights? Live sports are supposed to be the thing that everyone has to watch, and they support sort of the entire right. TV ecosystem. Are you worried about that? Look, this is going to sound Pollyanna, and and I'm not unbiased, but I actually believe everything I say. I'm not worried about the sports we're in. Eighty percent of the sports we're in are either playoff or tournament play sports. So we're in the NBA, which our ratings are up this year. We're in March Madness, which every year the ratings, particularly multi-platform ratings, have been going through the roof. And we have the Major League Baseball playoffs. And Major League Baseball has been the sport that's been in a little bit of a decline. But if you look at the, the most recent World Series, if you put two great matchups together, yep. and if it, it's an exciting series, all of a sudden the ratings were skyrocketing 25%. So you don't think there's an endemic, systemic problem with live sports? I don't. I think you know, the NFL may be specific and bespoke to the NFL, but it's, we're not in business with the NFL, so I, I would leave that for them to comment. When those, when those deals are up uh, in a couple of years, would you bid on NFL rights? We, we've said before we would always be interested in being in business with the NFL. I... I mean, it's, it's a fantastic franchise, fantastic properties. Um, I, you know, I personally discount um, the probability that we'll end up having one of the packages. And do you think you'll, we'll see, uh, this is not your company, but do you think we'll see an Apple or a Google or an Amazon making a real bid for one of those traditional TV packages? Someday, but not in the next few years. Because I think the franchises, I think the sports franchises care a lot about how their games are being presented and produced. And I think, you know, IP delivered video still has a ways to go. I mean, in fact, um, Mio Babich, who's the CEO of iStream Planet, which is a company we own the majority of, Mio's company did the Olympics and he did it flawlessly, 4,500 hours. So maybe it's more of a reality sooner than I'm giving it credit for, but I think the sports leagues, um, you know, they're making so much money on the license fees from traditional TV networks. Um, I, but I think they care a lot about how those brands are being portrayed and produced. And I think, you know, maybe they'll be non-exclusive someday or mobile rights will be carved out separately and more aggressively sold. But, uh, but I think the traditional networks are going to be in business with the sports leagues for a long time. And our sports are tied up. March Madness till 2032, the NBA till 2025, and Major League Baseball till 2021. No sports worry for you. Um, I have other questions, but I'll let you guys take a crack real quick. Don't be shy. Uh, hi, I'm Jason from Mashable, which is part owned by Turner in full transparency. Uh, You're taking you one of my questions, <laughs> Thank Jason. Thank you. Am I? I think, yeah. Uh, you spoke about it being kind of moronic for HBO to not be allowed to be on other platforms, which seems reasonable. She also said that there's uh, vertical integration advantages. One of those seems to be zero rating. Um, DirecTV's new now program is already zero rated on AT&T. Would you think it would be fair for Turner to have zero rating on AT&T, considering how important, as you guys said, um, you know, data plans are going forward? I think it's, it's a terrific question. I think it's probably a better question for AT&T at this point. I mean, from Turner's standpoint, it sounds like a pretty good idea. I mean, because if, if – and it sounds like a good idea for consumers. I mean, if consumers have access to more content and have the ability to consume that content and have it not count against uh, a, a, a costly data program uh, or a data plan, 
um, that sounds like uh, a good consumer-friendly proposition, and it would be good for our company. But as to what AT&T's plans are with respect to specifically Turner or Time Warner, I'm, I, it would be premature for me to comment on that. Questions for John? Something back there? I feel like we talked the, uh, the Trump part of the news cycle at the very, very beginning of this interview, but it was a kind of common theme, of course, through a lot of the uh, discussion tonight. So I wanted to ask if there had been a discussion over the past week. One of the biggest headlines certainly has been about whether the news organizations are stenographers, whether you can just say, well, Trump tweeted, millions voted illegally, and whether that should just sit out there, or whether there should be editorial context when reporting, things like that, if that's been a discussion at CNN in, in your, to your knowledge. Well, I think we have, we have a, a journalistic um, responsibility to not only report what the president-elect is saying, but then also provide some context and, and to pro tr try to put it in perspective. I mean, so the prior speakers, I think we're not wrong by saying, and this, this whole idea of fake news is now new jargon, you know, there are organizations that are going to have to be trusted, and there are organizations that are going to have to try to put all of the news in context and to try to describe it to people in a way that's, that this is why it matters and this is why it's important. And I think what CNN has done a good job at is making sure throughout the election process that the voice from both sides were getting um, pretty much equal time. And and then allowing the viewers to determine what they think was in their best interest or what they agreed with or disagreed with. And I think, you know, if you look at 2017 with a new Trump administration and just frankly with all the crazy things that are going on in the world, uh, a lot of which are not great, uh, I don't think CNN's position in the journalistic community has ever been more important. And I don't think there is a news organization that has the global scale that CNN has to deploy resources at scale that we can and can report in as much depth as we can. I feel, I feel great about the business proposition of CNN, but I feel really great about the journalistic mission and the place that it's going to have within news organizations. Because I think news organizations that don't have scale are increasingly going to to, to have a difficult time competing over time. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to do a better job at optimizing the CNN experience across the platforms as to how people want to experience news. So I there was, saw, John, I saw you nodding when Jim was talking about shoving values down on, on, on his, his relatives in Oshkosh. Right. And, and people in the city didn't get it, and CNN's across the street there. Do you think CNN in particular needs to rethink the way it, it, it's, it's packaging and framing news to, so to get people in Oshkosh to, to be more receptive to what it has to say? Well, we're always rethinking. I mean, Jeff Zucker has an editorial review meeting with at least 150 people on video conference every morning. And it is one of the most spirited, debated meeting I've ever been in, in terms of is the organization covering the right stories? Are we covering it in the right way? Are we giving Trump too much airtime, too little airtime? Are we being too positive, too negative? And somehow, I, I, there isn't a business at Turner that I would submit requires more judgment on a daily basis and more decisions in sheer number than CNN. And so we're going to constantly evaluate whether we're doing the right thing or not. I mean, listen, so I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, I, 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 don't, I don't remember if you said it was your family members, but the day after Thanksgiving, I, I sat with my parents and my two sisters and their husbands, and I was 
I mean, I was sitting in, in, in a bunch of Trump advocates uh, with a bunch of Trump advocates. And my sister, who I adore, looked at me and said, John, you can't possibly tell me that Fox News isn't more fair and balanced than CNN. I thought my head was going to explode. And they know where you work. I mean, I, and, you know, and my, and my dad, who I also love dearly, he goes, you know, oh, CNN, that's that lefty network. You got a big problem with that thing. You know, but, but it gets back to people are migrating and consuming news where they're seeing things that are validating their own opinions. And, you know, there's, there's certain things I try to stay away from debating people that I love and care about. And news, uh, no, I'm sorry, religion and politics are two of them. But they'll let you eat the turkey. Uh, one last question for John, or I can go here, right back here. What do you think was going to happen with Time Warner if it hadn't done the deal? Oh, we're going to invest ourselves. Well, we've had numerous discussions internally about... So the question for, for you guys in the back, if you didn't okay. hear, was had you not done the, the AT&T deal... Um, how would you become this tech platform that you want to become? Well, we've already, it's an evolution, and we're already in the process of doing it. So we've got a Turner Data Cloud. We have one central repository of all consumer information out at Turner. Uh, we're working very collaboratively with Warner Brothers and, and HBO trying to figure out how we can commingle and work together to make one time Warner solution. And what I was trying to communicate with Peter in the interview was my own personal belief that over time, I think you know, it may be very strategic for our company to actually own or control the consumer experience end-to-end -end because there's always been an argument in media, well, is content king or is distribution king? And I think the answer is very clear right now that neither one of them are king because there's a third element, which is a consumer experience. And there's no doubt that consumers will take an inferior content experience if their overall user experience is fantastic, if it works, if it's high quality, if it's ubiquitous, if it's mobile, if it's easy sign-on, I don't understand for the life of me why the traditional cable operators and some of the biggest, most well-capitalized ones, like Comcast or Charter, like, why aren't they innovating faster? Why aren't they the virtual MVPDs? Like, why are they seeding space and allowing other people to come in and take their customers away? So, you know, we've been in business forever relying on other people to innovate the consumer experience, and I just don't know if that's a sustainable model over the long but term. Let me just play devil's advocate. You are good at making content, right? And there's companies that are really good at tech, and Netflix, and Apple, and Facebook, mm -hmm. and Google. And they have a lot of money, and they have great engineers, and they can pay those guys a ton of money. It seems unrealistic for you guys to create experiences that are as good as the ones they can make. Why not stick to making content, and then distribute it widely to a bunch of people who are really good at that part of the business? That, that would be... Uh, well, that makes a lot of sense with one exception. Ultimately, if we want to control our own windows and if we want to control how we monetize, um, those other companies are not going to allow us to do that. So the argument would be that you only get full control if you own the global rights of your IP and if you can control the consumer experience. And I think in the interview I said to you, this was an aspiration. This wasn't like a product roadmap that we were going to roll out in a year or two. But I just think that, um, that I, you know, I personally believe that we need to rethink our licensing strategy for our content. We need to be more innovative about 
uh, launching new shows. I mean, some of the things that Kevin has been doing recently has been incredibly innovative in terms of providing full season binging of new shows. And when and you say rethinking it, licensing, does that mean pulling it back from the Netflix of the possibly. world and the Amazons of the world? Well, just not pulling it back necessarily from them, but you know, is it the smartest idea to license them content one year after it's available on our own networks? Or do our own network branded environments ultimately become little SVOD services of their own? So, so if hold that stuff back longer, so make me wait X number of years before I can watch. Uh... Well, not, not wait, but, but just know that if you're, if you're a fan of The Last Ship, and we've had three seasons of The Last Ship, right now The Last Ship is available on an SVOD service, the back seasons. It might be a better strategy for consumers to know that the only place that they can watch Last Ship is in a TNT network branded environment. And we have it available in on-demand on a lot of traditional distributors. Just a lot of customers don't know where to find it. And it's not a particularly good experience. So these are the internal debates that we're having all the time. I'm not suggesting that we've got a wholesale answer because it also might be on a case-by-case basis. But I think we've got to think very hard about what are the, what, how do we maximize the value of these network brands. And if we're merely habituating a whole a generation of consumers to just wait and watch it on Netflix or Hulu, I don't see how that's the best business answer for us. Seems like that ship sailed, though, right? Like, in fact, you guys invested in Hulu and said, all right, we'll give you our content so we can do just that. No, no, no. No, I mean, look, we were... uh, No, I mean, look, we're a 10% investor in Hulu. Uh, We're a participant in the virtual MVPD, which which when they launch it, I think is, is a great thing for our company. But that doesn't mean that we have... You know, we'll we still control... The, the, the IP that we own. So we can still make any and all decisions that we want with respect to that. We don't yeah, have to Yeah, I just mean the consumer is already habituated. The consumer already knows. You go to Netflix, you go to Hulu, you get the stuff you want. You don't need to worry about finding it on a dial. You don't need to worry, you don't need to worry about what network it's on. It seems yeah, like that's I, I already the standard now. I, I don't, I, I think I would mildly disagree with you. I don't think the genie, I don't think necessarily the genie can't be put back in the bottle. I've got to end it at the genie in the bottle because that's a good quote to end it on. Thank you very much for your time. And we'll thank do this you for like having. six months again. Yeah, thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. And be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, in which Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Friday, I host Two Embarrassed Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. You can find all these shows and more at recode.net or wherever you listen to your podcasts.